Healthcare and senior care is fraught with problems and challenges, but we're also seeing some amazing new clinical treatments and resources. This show will help illuminate and uncover the good, bad, and the ugly in order to equip patients, families, and other healthcare providers. Welcome to Senior Care Confidential. Joe, how are you today? I am doing good, Brian, on this so, rainy, cold day. I think we're just going to get started in with this because I've kind of shared with you a little bit of the backstory here, why we're doing the show today. And I think this is going to be a must watch for a lot of our um, referral sources and a lot of our patients that we currently work with, um, anyone going through the hospital. So quick story, you kind of know a little bit of this now. Um, I had a family member, a close family member of mine, my grandmother, um, fell and broke her hip uh, about 10 days ago and then had surgery the following day. So this was last Sunday. And um, nothing that was supposed to be done in the hospital was done appropriately, despite my best efforts in trying to you know, educate my parents and my aunts on, hey, make sure these things are happening. Um, and them talking with the facility staff there, it just didn't. And so I felt like this would be a good time, an opportune time, because you and I deal with this for every day, uh, yeah, all day. for a lot of our other patients too. And now it's personal. <laughs> and so I figured, so I'm glad we talked beforehand because I was gonna be a little bit saucier um, had we not, because I'm really angry at this whole situation. And so what I felt like would be good is to kind of give some backstory on here's the things we should be looking out for. If you're a patient, if you're a loved one of a patient and you have somebody that you know and that you care for, if you don't care for them, no big deal. But if you care for them, there's some things you guys, you should be aware of, like some, some statistics and some um, side effects or whatever, or things to look out for while your loved one is there. And then also kind of get into like, okay, now how do we navigate this stuff? So a couple statistics for, for everybody. Um, the New England Journal of Medicine um, study showed a one in one in four patients experienced some, experienced some sort of harm. We call that an adverse event um, after being admitted to the hospital. And here's the weird thing about that is the the adverse events. You know, we talked before the show are not always documented. And some of the things like what happened with my grandmother this week um, is still happening um, are not considered adverse events, but I would call them almost negligent, you know? And so we can kind of talk about why we think that is. Um, but they, the, another, there's another study that shows, and we see this a lot too, right? With falls and those kind of things, that if you go to the ER first, before being admitted to the hospital, the chance of an adverse effect, uh, adverse event or harmful event is four times greater which is just wild. Like the, the idea that 25% of your patients are, are automatically going to be having, having some sort of bad event happening at a hospital. And then you're so, four times more likely if you go to ER first is just crazy. So let's talk about adverse events. Yeah. So give some examples for the listener on what is this one out of four? So what are some things yeah. that could be considered adverse? They would be like um, most often they're medication errors. And we've talked about a couple of those, um, or like a fall or some sort of an injury, um, developing a, a pressure ulcer while under the care of a hospital, those kind of things. I think fewer of them are more surgical complications, like infections or whatever. I think the majority of those things are more of the, the things I just listed. So that's and, usually- And I will say from the hospital side, so yeah. the perspective, when I go to an ER, they, it's, uh, you know, I, we used to know that Parkland, our Dallas charity hospital- You'd go into the hospital and people would wait in the halls. And, you know, that was standard at the charity hospital. Yep. Brian, that is at every hospital, even the nicest hospitals in Dallas. If you go to an ER at three in the afternoon in Plano, Texas, you're going to see beds in the Are halls. You serious? Yeah. I mean, it's that's why we need advocates. You know, they are waiting. Um, 
you know, there are too many patients. There are not enough rooms. There's not yeah. enough staff. Um, and that's it, just the ER part of it. That is yeah. just the ER part of it. Right. Wow. And they might get an initial order. Um, like I had a patient that was in the ER in Plano and the patient got, they thought she had a UTI. She wasn't eating or drinking, super confused. And they gave her a bag of fluids. Well, the bag was out. And so we're like, okay, what now? We had to just wait. So basically she got a bag of fluids and waited six or seven hours to see a doctor. Wild. I know. Just yeah. waited in the hall. It's crazy. Yeah. So one of the things that I think patients and family members should be aware of is a thing called what they call the cascade of dependency, which, you know, so let me back up. So the bed rest thing was popular in like the late 1800s until like World War II, you know, because we're, back then we're dealing with like various infections or whatever. It's like, you just need to lie in bed and let the body have enough strength to, to conquer this infection so you'll recover. And then World War II comes around and we realized that after these wounded soldiers are coming back, we're like, huh, well, the ones who actually get up and move around are actually recovering far, far faster. So this notion of let's not stick somebody in a freaking bed for 24 days is not something new. It's been around since the 1950s, so 75 years ago, right? Uh, we knew that long-term bedridden or long-term bed rest is not a good thing, especially in your in your older years. And so this is one of the things that we were dealing with with my grandmother. You know, she's got this hip fracture and she was supposed to be getting therapy seven days a week. She got it three and eight days, not twice a day, once. Um, and so she's, this poor woman's been laying in a bed for 24 hours a day um, with nurses coming in. We think doctors, you know, sometimes you don't get there until later in the day. So we think we're hoping the doctors actually came in there, but, um, the things that we're seeing with her are clear. Like there are other things that are failing. We've got pulmonary complications now. There's a there's a UTI going on now. Um, she's half alert. Um, she can talk and she can move her legs if you ask her to, but she's not cognitively there the same way. And so that's this is that cascade of dependency. So for the viewers, there's a list of these things to look out for. And I'll, and I'll kind of go slow. Um, but this will give you an idea of what things to look out for. Um, obviously, with the bedridden thing or the bed rest, one of the real big complications is just the functional side of things, right? The the they're going to lose strength pretty rapidly. And there's a ton of studies on mm -hmm. how long uh, bed rest leads to, you know, the the longer longer road to recovery. I don't have to bore you with the statistics on that. It's just bad, right? So you want to be you early mobilization is always best. So you're going to see a loss of strength, a loss of mobility from them. Um, you're going to see their their cardiac output, their heart strength is going to get weaker, their ability to manage blood pressures because they're in this we call supine, but mm -hmm. face up position for so long. The muscles that govern their uh, blood vessels don't function as well. They don't sense things as well. And so you'll you'll have these issues where their blood pressure will tank when you try to get them sitting up again or standing up again. Um, You'll see, like in my grandmother's case, uh, reduced ventilation or some wheezing because of pulmonary complications from lying in the bed too long. You'll see urinary tract infections from these things. You'll see potentially uh, uh, pressure ulcers, and you'll see some, um, with some of them, some cognitive changes. So that when they say this cascade of dependency, what that means is all these systems 
it's weird because your body actually needs stress to survive. And with, in the, with lack of stress, lack of movement, the body has no incentive to, to, to continue to stay strong. And so you'll see a cascade or all these body systems starting to slowly fail, and in some cases fast. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately that means that these people, one, their mortality rate is going to be higher, right? And or two, their, their, their dependency afterwards um, is going to, is going to persist for, for much, much longer. In some, in some cases it's permanent. And the crazy thing about this cascade of dependency is it's preventable. I know. If you're just watching for these things, if, if the family members are looking for these things and I get it because I'm now dealing with this on the, on the, on the personal side, I understand that, you know, our yours and my ability to kind of clinically assess things. We, we see things in a snap. It's really easy for us to see for non-clinicians or family members. This may be harder to see. So hopefully that kind of short list of things to look out for will help. We would like to, think that the nurses and the doctors in charge of our loved one's care are kind of paying attention to these. I'm just telling you, it doesn't happen as often as you would like. Well, and I mean, just one thing, looking at the decline in muscle strength and aerobic um, range of motion. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is nursing 101. And you stretch arms, you move arms up and down, you know, bend your arms and legs. Is that happening in the hospital? No. It's not. And if you ask a nurse about it, oh, well, that's therapy. Uh, I'll let right. therapy know. That that's the answer. It's not. Oh yeah, let's do some stretching, Mrs. Smith. Mm-hmm. Or you know, you know, daughter, you're welcome to help with that. If you want to stretch, y'all can work together. It's not happening. No. You know. No. And so that that brings me to my next question because I I know you've done some hospital work before. I did scant. So I'm, this is not, you know, there's, there's a few things that, that, that I know a lot about hospital environment is not one of them. I just get to see the effects of it. And I go, that's something wrong. Can we fix that? Um, and so what do you think is the culprit behind why does there seem to be less, I don't know if it's attention because let me, so let me preface it this way. I refuse to believe because I know doctors and nurses and therapists, None of us got into school and into this field mm-hmm. because we wanted to neglect patients. So I, ref- I refuse to believe that the the person or the individual nurse or the, or the doctor is kind of the corporate in the vast majority of cases. So that being said, what are the things that are that are structured around them that's leading to these kind of failed, whether you want I mean, to call them adverse events, which like was is fall or. I don't even know what you would call it because it's not an adverse event. It's just like neglect where they lay in a bed for too long. And now you see this cascade of things that are happening where the body's failing. Well, I can say this. When I worked at Parkland, I had worked a 12-hour shift. I checked in, clocked in at 6.45, clocked out at 7.15, 12 hours later. But I didn't even take a lunch break. I mean, and I was on top of my patients, charting on top, doing what I was supposed to do. It was good time management. And I, you, you and I both have good time management. That's why we're leaders. Um, but you have to make sure everything gets done. I mean, that that is, if for, in my opinion, the Nurse Practice Act. Right. You know, we, you know, you can't just let a patient lay there. I know. And so that's where I'm going, though, because I don't believe that nurses would do that intentionally. I don't think so therapists so would do that yeah, either. So there's something else driving that. And so... What I think, and this is, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, what I think a lot of it is, and there's the, they've done some studies actually, and I'm not a big fan of the like single payer um, healthcare system, like what they have in Canada. That's, I, don't, I don't know that that's the right way to go. But when they, when they went from, Canada went from like a multi-payer system like we have now with insurances and, and you know, single thing to the single payer thing. And they actually found that the administrative burden 
on hospitals and on the healthcare system actually dramatically reduce. So there's something to be said for, you know, we've got way too many regulations in, in healthcare coming from CMS, right? Centers for Medicare and Medica Medicaid Services, right? So, you know, my from, for our company, our home health company, it's like 3,000 pages of regulations that we got to pay attention to. I, I would imagine at hospitals with various departments, it's way more than that, right? So there's a huge regulatory burden, which means you have to have a lot of, you know, middle layers of management to make sure that we check all the boxes for the surveyors when they come out with their lovely little spreadsheets and the check boxes. Um, and then you also have the multi-payer system, which every insurance has their own kind of authorization process. And so it just, it, I think it creates a lot more administrative burden and, um, and probably a lot more cost, well, definitely a lot more cost to the hospital. And so it feels like it's a combination of being short-staffed, maybe not having the time management skills of the nursing piece, um, and also having administrative burden that seems to kind of create this structure that we have that makes it really hard for the clinicians and the, and the, and the doctors on hospital campuses where they just kind of miss things that seem to be obvious for me and you. I know. I mean, they're they're it's so important on getting that paperwork, those boxes checked. Yeah that you forget the big picture. You know, I shared with this you with you with this earlier. I have a client, a charity client who is just adorable and was not wise with his money. Um, uh, but he is on one of those crazy advantage plans. Um, went to the hospital with a fall. They admitted him, his labs were off. Um, they after three nights, they were gonna send him to a skilled rehab for strengthening. So because it was a holiday weekend. Um, they did not get insurance approval for five business days. Mm -hmm. So instead, knowing they're sending him to rehab to get him stronger, those five days, they provided zero physical therapy, yep. zero occupational therapy. They did not get him out of bed. Not once. Yep. He and how much weaker is he now there. because of that? Uh, so weak. Yep. And and he wound up going to a skilled facility that yeah. was absolutely horrible. The TV didn't work. He was freezing <laughs> in the room. Therapy never he had therapy three times in like nine days. And so he just went home. He went AMA. Yep. He's like, I can get better care at home by myself. I think there's a misconception in the medical field. And I and I know from for, for a fact, it also happens on the on the non-clinical side too, where, where people who just think that, you know, people think that therapists are like, we're like the exercise guys. And what I think there needs to be, especially with an elderly, elderly patient population, yes, no doubt, probably 70% of the stuff that I do is movement or exercise based. I wouldn't say it's exercise based. I would say more movement based. Um, but the, the reality is the body needs movement to thrive and to survive. Okay. And so so, so like, let me say this. Yeah. Okay. My little patient that went to this skilled rehab, the first day of ther therapy was making sure he knew how to brush his teeth. It's crazy. I mean, is that okay through no. Medicare? I mean, is that so, no? Well, so yes, if it's a well, but he has no memory issues. If he had a deficit there, then yes. If they were just kind of checking him off, because there are there are some things that. Um, there's some scoring metrics that Medicare requires us to look at. And some of them are, you know, dressing, bathing, toileting, that kind of stuff. Um, and so we will do some of those as a specific task just to kind of see, hey, how are we doing there? Sometimes you can glean enough from how they move around to, to know how much help they're going to need with, you know, upper body dressing or lower body dressing. So it could have been that they were just more of doing a test to see. But if they were devoting time to do treatments for that, then that's probably not... 
yeah. appropriate. Um, but yeah, so if they're not, but my point is, if you're not getting the patient up and moving, especially an older patient, they're going to have multi-system declines. It's not just, you know, like in my grandmother's case, it's not just the fractured hips that the, that's the issue. Yes. Do we want to get some mobility in that hip and some strength in the hip? Do we want her to be able to weight bear on that thing so she can walk again because she was walking before fine? Absolutely. hundred percent. And earlier mobility on a recently repaired joint like that is crucial. But it's more than that. In fact, it's far more than that. Because if you don't get her up, now we have the UTIs. Now we got the pulmonary complications. Now we got risk for wounds. Now we got um, you know uh, GI issues. All these system things. Why? Because we didn't get them up. And I and well, I, and they're not doing baths in the hospital anymore. I mean, no. You know, which that was part of. As a nursing student, I worked in a hospital on the weekends, and I gave thirteen baths a shift. It was crazy. Yeah. But. Why did they stop those? I mean, it couldn't have cost that much with with a nurse's aid, you know, salary. But those people, they feel better. They get up. They yeah. move. They're, you know, to me, it's so beneficial. Yeah, it could be. It could be one of those useful things where you get them up for that. What I was telling my my parents was, for my grandmother, it's not. It's not so much. There is a. There is a, a factor of the amount of time out of bed, right? They're just even sitting up is far more effective to to maintain your body systems than lying down. Hell, even if you even if you get I told you I'm saucy. Um, even if you get them, you know, in a recliner and we kick the recliner back, it's still better than being supine, you know, face up in a bed. And so, you know, we, they were thinking, well, what if we get her up for several hours at a time? I, I don't know that she's going to tolerate that quite yet. And so, what a better strategy might be while we're building up her tolerance for the time, it could be, hey, which is what I told the sniff, I want her up out of bed just in a chair. Her up for, for a sponge meals. bath. No, just for meals. For a meal too, yeah. but for a sponge bath. Right. Yeah, all that. And so, and the benefit of getting them out of the bed for mealtime is now, not only am I going to build numbers of hours throughout the day, I don't have to worry about her tolerating it for eight hours, right? But if I could do two hours for breakfast, two hours for lunch, two hours for dinner, not only am I getting like six hours total over being out of bed, but now because I'm doing the transfers back and forth, now we're doing now we're working on the mo the functional mobility Absolutely. piece of it. We're working on the weight bearing piece of it, and it's a frequency of things because this is what I was what I was explaining to my parents that when you're dealing with something like like a post op hip, let's we'll take her for example. The initial weakness that you're experiencing or that the patient's experience or that you as a loved one is seeing, that weakness is is because of an inhibitory signal from the brain. It's actually not that they lost that much strength like that because of the surgery. It's she had the fall, which was a trauma, which was perceived as a trauma by her brain in the first place. And then she gets opened up and sawed on and a, and a rod put in her, in her uh, femur um, and then sewn back up again. And so now she's got multiple traumas and lots of swelling and she's got soft tissue damage now because of all this stuff. And so the brain goes, what the heck just happened? And so as a protective response, it's going to send a lot of swelling and it's going to send some muscle guarding to limit motion and it's going to make you profoundly weak. And so initially where you see the actual biggest strength gains after something like that is not because we're strengthening the muscle. It's because all the things that we're doing, there's a psychology piece to this, all the things that we're doing are sending signals up to the brain to say to the brain, hey, turn that inhibition signal down some. And the more you reinforce that, which I was telling my parents, like, hey, do this frequently throughout the day because it needs repetition. The more repetition we get that signal to the brain to lower that inhibitory signal, rather, then the easier it's going to be for her to do the next transfer. And so that's kind of things. So these are the things that I try to coach some of our patients who, whether they're on service with us to go to the hospital or I get several calls 
a month from patients that are in hospitals or in rehabs and like, hey, uh, we're kind of seeing, we're, we're going to come see you after uh, mom or dad discharges, but we're kind of running some issues at the hospital. What can you tell us? I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, let's go. So I kind of go point by point with them. Here's the things to look out for. So I tell them to look out for this cascade, you know, the uh, cascade that leads to dependency, cascade, whatever it is. Um, Cascade two depends. I think is what it's called. Um, and then I and I talked them through the importance of frequent repetition um, of mobility. You know, getting them out of the chair, getting them out of the uh, not the chair, getting them out of the bed into the chair rather. You know, multiple times throughout the day, and then gradually increasing. Even set a timer to it. Gradually increasing the, num- the amount of hours or minutes that they're out of the out of the bed, because all those things are going to counteract all these are the negative things that we see because you're in the bed too long. And well, this isn't like rocket science. We've known this but, for years. But Brian, yeah. like the very best ortho surgeons here, mm-hmm. they have what's called a recipe. Yes. And they will or say, protocol. okay. Yeah. yeah. I call it, you know, yeah. I've had doctors say it's, a, it's, it's our recipe. Um, so they have the surgery. Next morning, you get them up. Yes. They stretch. They yep. get in the shower. Oh, yeah. You know, so why are not all surgeons mandating that for their patients? This was there. And it just wasn't being done. In fact, one of the therapists that came out late, I think it was this weekend, actually, she said, well, your, your mom's supposed to be see, being seen seven days a week. No kidding. Like, where have y'all been? And so, um, this, this, which brings but who's me, overseeing that? There's usually a director of rehab. And so I actually called the patient advocacy line. There's usually one person. In this right. case, it's Central Florida. So this guy is over a couple different hospitals. And so I called his office. And of course, they're not going to talk to me because I'm not a power of attorney. Uh, but I can, I can certainly relay information and go, hey, this needs to be fixed and like fixed fast. Um, and so... Um, there's usually a patient advocate that is there for customer cons- the complaints at the hospital. Yep, um, that's there for complaints or whatever. You know, they're kind of they're kind of like the company's HR. They're trying to smooth right. things over, but they can be they're really customer use- service. Yeah, yeah, they can be really useful in these cases where it's like, hey, there's some real big concerns about the lack of care or the lack of attention for this particular patient, um, and so they can be really helpful. Um, one of the other things I learned too, and so my my dad is a um, he'll he'll see this later. So my dad is brilliant, and he is um, he's definitely a driver mentality. And what I learned through this, and with some of my other patients who I know, like high performing executives, like this is they were they were like this, right? They they ran big companies or whatever. I've learned through them, and especially now that's personal, that in a hospital context, they're not the same person. And so I, I think it's because they're going to a hospital, which is scary in and of itself, right? Your loved one's already hurt, right? They've had a big, they've had a big surgeon, like in my grandmother's case. And so this is where all the experts are, right? We got round the clock nursing care. We've got hosp- the hospitalists and the orthopedic surgeons that's going to be that's going to be and visiting. They know what they're doing. They got ther- the therapy team. Everyone knows what they're going to do. I'm not going to push here. I'm just going to kind of let them do their thing. And what I've learned over the course of years is that that oftentimes, I think, again, like we talked about before, the structure of regulatory burden, insurance burden, whatever, it just is. We're not fixed. It's 2024. It hasn't been fixed yet. And in my opinion, it's getting worse. Um, and so you're not going to fix it anytime soon. And so we as patients or patients' families need to go in understanding there are things that are structurally positioned against um, sometimes and a lot of times um, 
like good quality care at a hospital level. And just know that these things are harder to get accomplished. But if you know what to look out for and you know what things to request for, um, then it can make that a lot easier and your your loved one's time in the hospital a lot easier. And so, you know, you could either one, watch this video and kind of take some notes and say, hey, these are the things that need to happen for mom. No more. We're going to let her lay in bed for, for tomorrow or dad or whoever. We're not going to let them lay in bed for the next 24 hours or 72 or whatever the case may be. Or they're going to sniff. We already know they're going to go to rehab. Why on earth are we letting them sit in the bed for five days? waiting for authorization. And so maybe you do it that way, or maybe you hire someone like you who can actually help on the patient advocacy side. Cause you've, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, a lot of hospitals and here. I know the yeah. questions to That's ask. Right. Yeah. But and it's, I know where to complain. Right. Exactly. You know, right. And I know the standard of care. Yes. Yeah. It's supposed to happen. It's it's supposed to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm hopeful that this is this is helpful um, for you know the audience member. I'm, and I'm I'm actually going to share this with some of our current and former patients and future patients so that they can know. Hey, when you're going to the hospital, these are the things to look out for. Like you have to make sure that you're advocating. Don't just be the passive participant. I think well, I think it's the biggest thing. It is, but you know when you go to a restaurant and you have horrible service or your meal isn't cooked correctly. Right. You're going to send it back. Yep. If you go to a hotel and you walk into the hotel room and the sheets, the room is a mess, you're going to yep. go down to the front desk and ask. You've got it. These are, these are human beings. You've right. got to ask questions. Right. Um, you know, it's practicing medicine. It's not yep. perfecting medicine. It's practicing medicine. So doctors are fallible. Yes. You know, and every person is different. Every human being is different. So don't be afraid to ask. And if you are afraid to ask, hire me <laughs> because right. I'll ask. Right. That's right. And so I'm I not think, afraid to so ask. So I think the things to, for, for, patients and and loved ones to take away from it is, yes, be aware that there is the one in four statistic for adverse events. Those are the really bad things. You know, those are the those are the medication errors, those are the, you know, the falls that results in fractures while you're in the hospital. Like those are those are obvious things that I, I, I think in both of our opinions are probably underreported. Um, because we have stories that were not reported. Um so one in four is a reported. But I think the 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 more concerning piece for me as a as a grandson and as a and as a therapist is the other piece of it that where it's never captured in data or the research, which is this precipitous decline that happens with the elderly when they're in a hospital environment and they're not they're not being cared for. That I I think if not for all the structural things, I think nurses and doctors and therapists would pay more attention to it. That's, well, that's at least my opinion. So you, there's uh, a, there was a statistic from the Journal of um, Gerontology. I think, was, I think this was like 2019. And it said, hospitalization results in a substantial decline in functional status, meaning the, the ability to kind of get up and move around and do things on your own, in older adult patients. Between 30 to 55% of older patients demonstrate a decline in activities of daily living and up to 65% um, in the ability to walk during a hospitalization. So like half of them decline. If we know this, this is the Journal of Gerontology, if we know that half of our older patients are going to decline just because they're bedbound in a hospital. Maybe we should do a few things to fix that. And that's why they need home health, follow up at home. Um, you know, yeah, I'll tell you, if they, did, if they did their job at the hospital, it makes my job at I home much, much easier. Well, and you know, for what I tell my senior patients is for, and their families is yeah. for every day in the hospital is a week of recovery. Yes. So you cannot expect mom or dad to run a race, yeah. but you've got to see yeah. improvement. Yeah. You know, I had a, a patient, the family wanted him, wanted him to get better. 
And so the PT came out and we got him walking and the family would walk him around the house twice a day, one on either side. He had mm-hmm. a walker. It was the cutest thing, but they did it as a little group, kind of a train yeah. around the house. Yeah. Um, made it fun, yes. you know, and get involved. Do not assume that the hospital even the home health mm-hmm. or the hospice or the private duty has all the answers. You know your mom or dad better than any of us do. Yep. We get and, we get them for a snapshot in time. Yes. Yeah. And so if you see, gosh, mom's got to get up. Mom's got to get moving. Or she doesn't look right today. Yeah. Yeah. Or if she's confused. Yep. You know, somebody that's that doesn't have dementia, if they've got a bladder infection, the first thing they're gonna they can do some of the craziest things oh, as yeah. seniors. And I always ask, I get a call. My mom is just acting so bizarre. She's yep. putting this on her head and does she have a bladder infection? Have you, you know, and it doesn't mean your urine has odor either. Yep. A lot of times you have infection with no symptoms other than confusion. Yep. I'll tell you one of the other things that we're starting to recommend now too. Cause I get, we get a lot of patients that, you know, they're, they're just, they're community, community dwellers and they've had some sort of decline or whatever. They're not coming from a hospital or a rehab center or whatever. They're just, you know, they're living at home and they've had a fall recently or whatever. The family members are concerned. So they're calling me up asking me, you know, what can we do to help? And so we've started to recommend uh, rehab hospitals for some of them. Now, it's not a pri- like my grandmother's case, she fell and broke her hip. Like she had to go to a hospital to get the surgery, right? Um, but in some rehab cases, instead of going to the hospital, right, a rehab hospital instead of a hospital. I've got something better. What's that? You know, Dispatch Health, uh-huh. which I want to have them as a guest. But they are a $30 copay. It's like an ER. It's yes, a visiting physician yep. and an MA or, or an EMT. I'm sorry. Yep. It's a visiting physician or a physician's assistant mm-hmm. or a nurse practitioner and an EMT. They can do labs. They can do x-rays. And they will order home health. Yes. So yep. those Yeah, we, we are, work with them too. Yeah. And yeah. they do a $30 copay. Your ER visit is usually, even with Medicare, a $500 copay. And you don't have to call the ambulance. You know, the ambulance, you're going to have a copay with that too. So utilize those kind of services. Yeah. Um, but if you need like institutional help, like, you know, mom and dad, like they I just, know. they need to be someplace because they're not safe at home and we just need to get them a little bit of time to get stronger. They're not going to get stronger in a hospital. Just It's just not happening. And so for those, in those cases where there's some sort of a chronic illness that's driving all this kind of stuff and they're just, they're experiencing this, this decline, uh, we'll actually recommend a couple of our local um, rehab hospitals well, here and even for that purpose. Because in those cases, they're getting like, you know, two and a half hour, two and a half to three hours or so of PTOT and speech, you know, daily. So at least we know they're not laying in a bed for 24 hours a day like well, they would at the local hospital. And they're, people can private pay for rehabs where a private caregiver in the home now at $35 an hour. It's, uh, was that $700 a day? Something crazy like that. Ish, it's, yeah. it's a, a lot. More than that, but yeah. Yeah. And so you think about, you could have therapy, meals, safety, and it's going to be less than half the price. Yeah. And, and your, your insurance will cover that. Yeah. And most, most of them are doing, most of them will take most insurances. So there's, if you got a Medicare Advantage plan, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit trickier with some of the plans um, to get into rehab hospitals. But um, if you got a decent Medicare Advantage plan and, uh, or original Medicare, it's, they'll, they'll do direct admits. They will, right but from home. check on, you know, if your insurance doesn't cover, it might be cheaper yeah. just to go pay privately for rehab because you can get pretty good deals yeah. for a daily rate. All right, so that's a thought good, too. This was great. I hope your grandmother gets better. So do I. And you I, just I'm have confident. to be the squeaky wheel. Yeah. And just what time? And I would start with not, oh, mom, dad, did the physical therapist not come in? I would call the therapy. Hey, what time mm-hmm. are you going to be over there with my grandmother today? Yeah. 
you know, because nobody's looking out for her but you. Yep. And, you know, they've got other patients too. It's that squeaky wheel. Yep. So um, you just have to speak up for the people that you care about. That's right. You can't be a part, you can't be passive, no, unfortunately. There's can't. just, there's so much going on and the, and the structure of everything is, is it makes it really hard. Like I said, I, 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 I want to be very, very clear and very careful. I'm not criticizing the nurses and I'm not criticizing the doctors. Um, I think that it's a, it's the structural stuff that's it's causing the, the distractions for all the other things that cause them to miss things. Cause these things are really basic. I mean, we've got a lot of data and a lot of years of research on um, the effects of being uh, bed bound. And it's not like they don't know these things. It's just the system doesn't support that kind of that kind of level of care. And so we as patients or patient advocates and family members need to make sure that we're driving the herd on uh, in the hospital system. Agree, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. This thank was you. a lot of great information. I hope she gets better. She will stay on her. I would fly down there and pop in <laughs> on her. I did that with my mother in a rehab. I yeah. popped in on a Sunday morning and. That was another episode for another time, but um, you have to be an advocate and yep. you've got to pop in. Yep, I agree. Because you've got to be that voice. Yeah. Thank All you, right, Joe. have a great day. All right, bye.